You're listening to the So What Podcast, where we discuss biblical and theological topics to ask the obvious question. I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by Matt O'Reilly, Travis Buchanan, and Lanier Wood. The So What Podcast is recorded in partnership with the University of Mobile, a Christ-centered academic community providing liberal arts and professional programs on campus and at a distance. You can find out more information at www.umobile.edu. If you enjoy the show, you can help the podcast grow by rating and reviewing it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Along these lines, maybe to shift the conversation to what Christ expects out of us from the Sermon on the Mount, one of the points that you make over and again is the importance of internal and external wholeness in our pursuit of holiness, and that our Outward actions should mirror our inward convictions. How does that play into who Jesus is speaking to in the sermon? And uh, does this relate at all to the idea of hypocrisy in the Sermon on the Mount? Thanks for the softball. You know that I think it does. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is. there are several things in there. Uh, yeah, several questions that are all related but distinct as well. So with whom is Jesus speaking? Well, he is speaking... At the same time to, well, all his hearers, which includes disciples and non-disciples, it includes Pharisees and believing people who are giving their lives to follow him, even as the Sermon on the Mount does today. Anybody can pick it up and read it, and the message is the same, I think. I don't find it helpful, as I argue in the book, to just read the sermon as if it's only meant for believers or something like that. I think that skews our reading. I think the message of it is the same. It's an invitation to all people to true human flourishing. The only way to experience that is to become a disciple, but still it's an invitation to all people to consider that this is the truth. And so I think he's speaking to everyone. The reason the Pharisees are so important for Matthew and for the sermon is because they represent one of the most dangerous and deadly misunderstandings of God and his work in the world. And Matthew describes that with this term hypocrisy. And it's really important to read the sermon closely in this, on this issue, and realize that for us, when we think about the word hypocrisy, we think of someone whose external life has two parts. That is, their, I should say it this way, their life has two parts. Their life has what they look like when everybody sees them, the public life, and then privately, their behavior is very, very different. So the person who's a pastor, who's up there, or anybody, you know, promoting sexual purity, and then it turns out, you know, he's been, you know, secretly having an affair for years or something like that. That's hypocrisy. And that is a kind of hypocrisy. But that's actually not what the Sermon on the Mount means. What the Sermon on the Mount means by hypocrisy is also a disjuncture, but not a disjuncture between behavior private and public, but a distinction between behavior and heart. That is that Jesus says that someone's hypocritical if their behavior is actually good. We're not talking about bad behavior. We're talking about good behavior, but their heart is not directed toward God. And that's exactly the dangerous place that he finds the Pharisees in. And later in Matthew, he's going to quote Isaiah's words about the same thing. This people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. That's an internal versus external. Honoring with lips doesn't just mean saying things. That's a metaphor, an image for their external behavior is good. They're going through fasts and festivals and the sacrifices, but their heart is not toward God and their heart is not toward others. That's what Jesus is getting at in the sermon. 
calling us to a wholeness of virtue between our interior and exterior lives. I think that's what the greater righteousness is. So kind of continuing that line of thought, to what extent can we experience that sort of consistency? And I'm, I'm thinking of like Jesus doesn't just give us an easy pass on this one, right? Because you've got be perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. You've got exceeding righteousness language. He's got some real concrete expectations. How do pastors help their people understand those expectations? And at one level, I think a lot of people just want to say, can we really take Jesus seriously? Thank you. Great question. Here's where I actually am going to disagree or just actually construct something that's different from both the Lutheran and the Wesleyan tradition. So I'm an equal op- opportunity disagreeer, I guess, in this case, although I don't think of myself as a disagreeable person. But in this case, uh, I want to construct an alternative to both of those. I'll say that. On the Lutheran side, which, again, I'm speaking big generalities here because Luther himself said a million things and, and maybe a good friend of mine, the theologian, always says, that's not really Luther's view, which is a good reminder. So I'll just talk about the Lutheran tradition, whether it's true of Lutheran or not. But the Lutheran tradition tends to read the sermon as impossible ideal. Like you read it, you realize you can't do this. And either kind of flippantly, we might say, who cares? Or more theologically, we might say, yes, this is the point of the sermon that I can never be righteous. Therefore, I needs Christ and be righteousness or something. That's true theologically. It's true existentially. That's not true about the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> I mean, that is not what the Sermon on the Mount is doing. It's not how it functions. It's not what Jesus meant by it. It's not what Matthew meant by it. The point of the sermon is not to just kind of say, hey, I'm just showing you that you're horrible. So now you'll love me more or something, right? That's not at all. <laughs> Neither do I think the Wesleyan... Maybe it wasn't Wesley, maybe different Wesleyans, but from what I understand, the Wesleyan tradition would emphasize at least some branches of it with the idea of Christian perfectionism, um, especially landing on Matthew 5.48, that the call to Christianity is to perfection. I think both of those misunderstand it, because what I think Matthew 5.48 is getting at is not perfection in the sense that we think of that word but wholeness. In other words, it is precisely in Matthew 5, 48, where this word teleos or wholeness comes into being. It's there. He's not calling us to perfection. He's calling us to an interior and exterior consistency. And what I would want to immediately say then after that is that kind of greater righteousness that's interior and exterior consistency or wholeness is going to be like fruit born in season and out of season over the course of our lives. And this is where the grace is so important here, that yes, the call is to wholeness, not to perfection, but to wholeness. But the reality of us working that out in our lives is going to be very, very mixed. Yes, there'll be progress, there'll be setbacks. This is the reality. And and what I would say about this is this is part of what's so beautiful about the Gospels, including Matthew, is that you see this is exactly how the disciples serve as models for us. Let me lay this out really quickly. If you think about the characters in the Gospels, you have two different kinds of characters. You have people who are models of badness, okay? They're very flat characters. They're like the Pharisees and others. They're just all bad, right? They do the wrong thing. They say the wrong thing. They try to kill Jesus. They finally do, right? Then you have characters that are flat characters of goodness, like the centurion who Jesus says, I've never seen faith like this. The Canaanite woman, you have all these kind of flat characters. They're not really developed, but they're examples of true faith response to Jesus. So you've got people who are don't respond in faith and people respond to like this beautiful faith. But then you've got the disciples 
who are the round characters. Like they're filled out. They're not just these flat characters. And if you look at them, they're just like us. They're very mixed. They have the high moments of giving up everything and following him. And then they have the lowest moments of like when they're in a, they, you know, they've been with Jesus. They've seen him multiply bread in the wilderness and fish and walk on water. And they're in the boat and he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they say, where did you guys buy that bread? Are you kidding? Did you bring the wrong bread? I mean, that's the kind of cluelessness that they represent. They don't. And he turns to them and says, do you still not understand me? Right. So this is the, this is the beauty of the disciples. And I think it comes back to the Sermon on the Mount in that just like them, our teleosness, our wholeness is going to be worked out over time very imperfectly with ups and downs in and out of season, but it's still a real call in the sermon to, uh, it's a vision. It's an invitation. It's not a command in that sense. It's a beautiful invitation to say, this is the way of human flourishing. This is the way of life. And I'm inviting you to follow me, stumbling towards it always, but follow me in being a disciple. And I promise that you'll find true life. John 10, 10. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I'll concede that plenty of Wesleyan branches get the doctrine of Christian perfection all wrong. But I think Wesley's insight is this idea of perfect in love. And so he was quick mm. to quick to reject mm. the, any idea of sinless perfection. And kind That's of that. good. Yeah. He was quick to explicitly rejected sinless per- perfection and talked about perfection and love. And Matthew 548 is probably one of the places where that's the idea, right? I mean, you've got perfect as the father in heaven is perfect. And and in the context, what is the father in heaven doing? He's being being kind to those who oppose him. And Jesus is calling on people to love those who persecute them, pray for their persecutors and love their enemies. So what does it mean to be perfect? It means to have a heart filled with love for those who hate you. Go Wesley. Every, is, every time I read him, I like him. And yeah. this is a good example of it. So that's good. Well, so, so, but it yeah. moves us away, I think, from categories of kind of ticking boxes of perfection. Well, yeah. I, I, yeah. Survived, I did that right. I did that right. And focuses on cultivating a life of other oriented love. And, yeah. that's, yeah. and that's what it means to embody the Father's perfect perfection. Love it. So. That's good stuff. That's good. On this note, this uh, embodiment of God's perfect love, you wrote on page 184. You know, I'm always interested to hear what authors think when they hear interviewers say, you wrote on a specific page. Well, <laughs> oh, I know exactly what of my course, was. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I have yeah. no idea what I said, <laughs> and I hope I agree with it. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll come back to you quickly. You remind your readers that Christ came to fulfill the law, not merely to reiterate the law. And I think that plays into this conversation as well, that Christ is embodying this very teaching himself this perfect love and inviting us to follow him in our pursuit of Christ-likeness after the perfect love that we've experienced from the Father. I think that's great. I wanted to ask you a related, more specific question about love and our relationship to God. Let's talk about the Lord's Prayer, because uh, it is a very helpful thing that you pointed out uh, in your section on the prayer. You talked about how people in the ancient world, in Greece and other polytheistic cultures, uh, believed that somehow babbling on in their prayers would manipulate or persuade the gods. However, that is not how Christians ought to pray, Jesus taught us. And you Bring up the specific reason why, which is found in the language of calling God 
Father. So how does our relationship to God as adopted sons and daughters change the way that we approach him in prayer? It's good. I think if I recall, I think I quote a great, some great words there from, is it from Willimon or something? I don't know if you have it in front of you, but yeah, I, I've been really helped in thinking about that as well. Yeah. So this is a major theme in Matthew, the fatherhood of God. When we think of that theme, we usually think of the gospel of John, rightly so. It is dominant most of all in John, but Matthew's second in terms of him emphasizing that God should be understood as a father. It's a very important theme. And that idea, primarily, I think the cultural encyclopedia that would run for that in the ancient world would be not maybe quite intimacy, like we might think of a father, especially if we've heard, you know, Abba, father kind of language, but more like protector and provider. I mean, even the Caesars were called the father of the country, for example, because this is the idea that they are the head and in that headship, a virtuous person provides and protects, right? And so I think this is, you know, this isn't unique to Jesus. He's not the first Jewish person to ever refer to God as father by any means in the Old Testament or Second Temple Judaism, but it seems to be a particular way that Jesus spoke. Like he emphasized it more than any other literature we have. He's not the first to do it, but he emphasizes it. It's a particular way that he speaks about. And so I think it's really important that the idea is that just, well, he's going to say this in the Sermon on, even as you know how to give good gifts, you, you know, fathers or mothers being sinful or evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will father give those mm-hmm. to ask? That's in chapter seven, but I think it's certainly connected to chapter six in the Lord's Prayer and that he's appealing to us and saying, why are you babbling on like that we have to twist God's arm mm-hmm. to do something for us, right? I mean, that's that's not our relationship to God. He's like a better than any father you can imagine who's glad to give, you know, my, my 20-year-old son who lives in a different house in town. He's a student. He works full-time as well. You know, he, I love it when he comes over anytime, mm. <laughs> you know, I love to see mm-hmm. him. And every time he comes over, I take him out to the freezer and I grab a cardboard box from the recycling bin and I just throw a ton of stuff in there, right? <laughs> because he'll eat anything because he's a single guy, you know, living. And so everything I know I bought, I buy extra stuff every time we go to Costco because I know he's going to come over sometime and I'm just going to load him up. Mm-hmm. You like orange juice? Here's an extra one. Here's one. You know, you like chicken melts from Costco? Here's 20 of them, right? There's no sort of hesitation about me giving to him. And that's, you know, I'm a broken, sinful, very imperfect father. Well, how much more? When we go to pray, He's glad to give to us. Now, the big question then that we might immediately, hopefully we'll grasp that at a heart level, but then why doesn't he give us everything we ask for? Well, there you get into the great mystery of prayer. Even though God's heart toward us is that fatherly love, you know, I I always like to say to students, it's good to remember that I know one very righteous person who didn't always get a yes answer to his prayers. And that was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, mm-hmm. you know, because there's a prayer that's greater than God, here's what I need. There's a prayer that's even greater and deeper than that. And it's not my will, but thy will be done. Mm-hmm. And and all of our praying needs to be sort of peppered with that in true humility. So we look to God as a father, knowing that his heart towards us is as much Costco out of the freezer as we want. And yet he also says, I know better right? And I'm going to do what is always good and right, but we need to respond with not my will, but thy will be done. And that's the posture of real faith that Jesus himself modeled.
animals for us, I think. Yeah, if you got everything that you ever asked for from God, um, <laughs> you, you wouldn't be blessed. Yeah, <laughs> you would that's not really be in a true. state of blessing. One thing that I would really like to talk about as we begin to wrap up our conversation is the term blessing. Uh, you coined this phrase, uh, macarism. From the beginning of each beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. Can you explain what you mean by macrism? Because I found that to be a very helpful concept. Yeah. So I've got a whole chapter in there, and that, that's a pretty important part of the whole book that I hope people maybe will read and wrestle with. Just for the record, I did not make up that English word. That actually is an English word in literary studies. A macrism refers to a statement of flourishing, a statement of happiness. And it comes directly, so M-A-C-A-R-I-S-M in English, but it comes as a transliteration of the Greek word makarios, which we usually in modern English translate as blessed, but this is precisely what I write a whole chapter arguing is not helpful and actually kind of messes up our reading of the Beatitudes because the word makarios, which comes into the Latin beatus, hence Beatitudes, and comes from the Hebrew ashrei or asher, and goes into every other language. I've asked, I probably have records of 20 or more languages where I've asked people about this or looked it up myself. The word makarios doesn't mean bless in the English sense of God giving favor or God creating life, that's a different word in every language that I've run across. That word in Hebrew is Baruch or Baruch. In Greek, it's eulageo or eulagetmai. In Latin, it's benedictus. In every other language, Spanish, German, that I've looked into, different. And this is part of the confusion. We have come to translate two different ideas with the same English word. The idea of a description of what happiness is and the act of divine favor, we describe both of those with this word bless, blessed, blessed, you know, there's some confusion. And I think even though those ideas are related, they are distinct ideas. And this is a huge part of the argument of that, well, it is the argument of that chapter and of the discussion of the Beatitudes. A Beatitude, a, macro, a macroism, is not a statement of God's favor. It is a description of true human flourishing or happiness. Now, how it all comes together is that according to the Bible, the only way you can experience true human flourishing is if God is blessing you. That's absolutely right. But it's still really, really important to keep those as distinct ideas. Otherwise, they, well, I can testify this is exactly what happens in the Beatitudes. People get confused about what it, what are they saying? Are they saying that if you do this, God will bless you or what? This is the whole confusion that comes up. So that's it. Yeah, I guess. So last question. If the word is happy, then Jesus says, happy are those who are persecuted. What is the relationship between happiness or flourishing and martyrdom, Christian persecution? How do we sort that out? Therein lies the great paradox of Christianity. You're hitting right on it. <laughs> and I would prefer flourishing over happiness just because of the you know connotations of happy today. But flourishing, how I translate those are flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing ultimately are you whenever people persecute and slander and revile and speak all kinds of evil things against you. Rejoice and be glad. Therein lies the deepest paradox of the whole Christian message that the Christian is, to use the my own translation of the language of First Peter 1, is the billionaire refugee. 
right? Or is we usually translate it in First Peter one, the elect sojourners or something like that, or elect exiles, the billionaire refugee. This is the irony, the paradox of being a Christian, that we are the most favored. We are the ones who are truly citizens of the king of the universe. We're the ones who have union with Christ. We're married to Christ. I mean, we are being made into the image of God. Every different metaphor, we're justified, we're sanctified, we're glorified. Every metaphor the Bible piles on to describe who the Christian is And at the same time, we suffer, we're persecuted, we're maligned, we're misrepresented. And of course, for Americans, that means almost nothing, right? Oh, maybe we get made fun of. But I mean, for most of church's history today, as well as throughout the church's history, Christians have suffered greatly. Mm. And so this is the message of, of Christ, that true human flourishing is available, but paradoxically and ironically, we will experience it now in the midst of persecution, and finally free when God returns his kingdom. I like to describe it as human flourishing. Christian human flourishing is a beautiful piece of steak, if you're not a vegetarian, sorry, uh, if you are, that is marbled through with suffering. And ironically, it's the marbling that makes a steak great, <laughs> Right. And we, we can't understand it fully, but, you know, it's our lives are marbled with suffering and, and pain and cancers and death and brokenness, even in the midst of us being declared to be the true ones who experience flourishing. 